Hi, it's Lucy and welcome to another episode of The Real Girls Club, my podcast where I interview women working in the film and TV industries to educate, inform and hopefully inspire you too. Today's episode is with Maria Kaderbay, who is Head of Programmes at BAFTA. You may know of BAFTA as, of course, the British Academy of Film and Television Awards, which will be taking place this month. But it's also a membership organisation and charity that supports, develops and promotes the arts of film, TV and games in the UK, offering an international programme of events and initiatives. In today's episode, we talk about Maria's career beginnings, her advice for conducting Q&As with film stars and so much more. Here is season two, episode seven of The Real Girls Club. Hi, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. I usually start my podcast episode by asking my guests how they got into the role they're in today and how they got into the film industry. So where did it start off for you and what did you study? So I studied French and cinema at Queen Mary's University of London, but it wasn't supposed to be that. It was supposed to be a degree that was French and European studies, but I managed to game the system a little bit and I realised that the European studies part of my degree I could just pick cinema units from all over and there's the arts department and different departments so I just studied lots of cinema from all around the world specializing in French cinema but then you know having a taste of everything and then in these language degrees you usually get to go away for a year and study abroad so I studied cinema in Paris for a year I ran around Paris with like a camcorder and I've made a pretentious short documentary that is hidden somewhere in a vault that no one will ever see. I would love um, to see it. And, <laughs> um, and I also used to run away from my cinema lectures just to go to the cinema because I don't know, I'm sure it's still the same in Paris, but this was kind of in the mid to late late 90s and you could just go to all these tiny art house cinemas and just see anything you want to see it any time of the day and so it was my own version of Emily in Paris without any of the clothes <laughs> and without the amazing apartment without the money but yeah running around and without a phone still <laughs> yeah without smartphones yeah wow that sounds like so much fun and like watching films anyway is educational I mean I studied film as well actually so I know what it was like when people would say to you oh you just watch films for your degree but you know obviously there was actually a studying aspect about watching yeah. films so clearly you already had an interest for films and cinema was that something that you had from your family or just a personal interest growing up that you discovered yourself or was it yeah and sort of exterior influence oh yeah I, I think I've loved that film and tv since I can remember my parents used to always say that I used to demand to watch things on loop and kind of our old VHS parents just watch films over and over and over again. And my dad wasn't always had a kind of, you know, he still does a kind of keen interest in watching films. And, and so I would watch any, whenever he's watching anything, watch everything. And we had a really great influences kind of from growing up in kind of British South Asian households, so lots of Bollywood cinema. But then at the same time, I think it was even my dad that introduced me only to Ken Loach because he was watching social realism at the time. And then it was the 80s and so kind of the heyday of that kind of 80s American cinema when you're a child running around on your bike and trying to get adventure. And so all of those different things fed into it. And again, yeah, I just 
my dad used to also have like a lot of home recording equipment which he had got into it's quite really unusual to do that kind of home videos in the 80s so I used to play with that quite a bit and I do remember again being super pretentious and having a kid's birthday party when I was seven years old and instead of having like a magician or someone to come and entertain the kids I actually played the short film that I (laughs) oh my god that is so like (laughs) that's so grown up I love that (laughs) it was like again the worst thing you've ever seen in your life it's probably why I'm probably not a filmmaker I could just imagine it at the party like everyone turn the lights out I'm going to show you my short (laughs) art film (laughs) actually at my my 14th birthday I, we all decided to watch Angus Thongs and Perfect Snogging. And I cringe a little bit when I think about it. I'm like, oh my God, did I actually like get everyone to watch that? Because everybody just want, like at that time wanted to party. But I was like, no, I want to watch Why a movie. Why not? It's your birthday. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I should choose. Yeah. Amazing. So yeah, it seems like you had quite an influence from your, your family and your parents definitely in the household and growing up. So what were your first experiences really in the industry, such as like, you know, work experience when you, when you finished your studies? I did a little bit of work. I kind of, as soon as university was over, that summer, I think I just, there was like, you know, in the old old days, notice boards and work experience. And there was a music video production company. And so over that summer, I got some work experience working kind of in music video production. I then actually did go to kind of an art college for a year after university, which my focus on photography and film production and so that gave me more of the practical tools and kind of gave me an insight into actually how you make things how things are framed kind of storytelling from the perspective of making rather than watching and then as soon as kind of that course finished I saw an ad for the British Film Institute they did six they did internships um, six internships a year so I applied for one of their internships and thankfully got the internship and then it was in the kind of what was then the kind of diversity and inclusion department but it was programming essentially because they had just been tasked with producing a eight month South Asian and diaspora film festival in the UK mm-hmm. but there was only a team of three people and then me the intern so on my first day my um then boss who's not still a good friend to this day handed me the encyclopedia of Indian cinema I was like read it <laughs> like, okay <laughs> I was up until then my specialized area had been kind of French cinema and so yeah I spent a year and a half at the BFI working on an eight-month nationwide South Asian film festival which was incredible it was a really good um kind of period of time for diaspora and British South Asian cinema and so the first film I ever programmed was Africa Party as a Warrior. And then it was also the time of Dorinda Chadwick's Bend It Like Beckham. And mm-hmm. then there was a lot of Bollywood cinema at the first time ever hitting the box office in the UK. So some of those films were regularly kind of in certain cities around the UK hitting and becoming in the top five of the UK box office. It was kind of a heyday, a celebration. So that was, yeah, my first array into kind of programming cinema and events did that and then that was an internship not that internship there was a job advertised at BAFTA for a I think what was it then a membership and events assisted I thought oh try my hand at that and thankfully yeah got that job wow sort of one thing led to another quite easily really all flowed quite well in the in the early days yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, I guess it's maybe sometimes more difficult these days maybe there's 
so many people trying to go for the for the same thing. But it seems like your experience at the BFI was a great sort of learning ground. How did you go from being a memberships assistant at BAFTA? Yeah. So when I started, there was a team. Our team again was three: so events membership, and then me. Um, and then the whole team at BAFTA at that point was around twenty people. Really insane to think of. Kind of, I know it's been. Yeah. I've been there on and off. Had periods where I've done things. I've been there for twenty years, uh-huh. so it has grown Massively. phenomenally in the last twenty mm-hmm. years. So, but yeah, it started off as um. A very small team is like 20 different jobs at each point. And yes, I started as the events membership assistant. But even from my first interview, it was kind of asked me what I wanted to do and kind of events I'd want to put on. And I'd been to some a couple of events actually when I was at the BFI that BAFTA had put on. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, I kind of like these. And I, think I, and I had ideas in my head of what I could do and how I would maybe shape the programme. And then thankfully, the team grew and I grew and my role changed in those first few years very quickly, kind of every six months to a year, incrementally, the role change and grew. And there's a lot of autonomy to kind of shape a programme and, and there has been ever since as well. And so there's different things that happen, obviously, along the way that we probably will we'll get to. But yeah, it's started from a very very small team to the point where I don't know if you to the point when we had the film awards in the back then that was in Leicester Square at the Odeon it was back to staff like us that we would used to hand out chocolate masks to everyone that attended so now obviously at the scale of the film awards is that there's uh-huh. you know, teams of hundreds of people uh-huh. and you know but we as staff would have to go outside and have to hand the chocolate mask to like nominees. A chocolate mask did they, you say? Yeah like, like the yeah. like the award but in chocolate. Exactly in chocolate so what would happen is um on the way from the ceremony to the dinner people might be a little bit peckish they got a little chocolate mask to eat <laughs> that's a great idea yeah you should so bring that back eat. but like you say it could be yeah well yeah we used to, to yeah do. to the point that we were handing them out and you're right it was very uh but things have definitely changed since then yeah I mean you're very lucky to arrive at a point I guess where they were probably very open to new ideas. And I'm, I'm sure they are still today as well. But I just yeah. mean, there is so much room for ideas and innovation mm-hmm. because they were sort of starting out and the team was small. So yeah, that was really lucky, I guess. So how did you go from being a memberships and events assistant and then evolving into now the head of programmes? So I um, had been, it's been 20 years in total at BAFTA. And then I would say about five or six years in the role had grown quite a lot quite quickly but you always get to a point in your career like you know I've done I've been doing this but the curiosity peaked and I was actually offered a job um, with Al Jazeera English they had mm-hmm. just launched in the UK and again I think so much of this industry and I know we'll get we can talk about it it's about kind of right place right time mm-hmm. network so the person one of a really a good friend of mine who was in that team that I worked with at the BFI who again is still a very good friend and actually a producer and has produced a couple of kind of key films recently. Um, he was we were at a festival and he was going out to meet friends and he said, do you want to come? And it was the team from Al Jazeera. And so we were just talking that evening and then they mm-hmm. offered me a job in their team. Wow. They just launched and it was, they were doing, um, it was in the entertainment team at Al Jazeera and it was a film show. And so they were looking for a journalist and a producer to come and join the team on the phone. Amazing. Um, and so it all just kind of clicked into place yeah. quite quickly mm-hmm. with that. But I didn't want to leave BAFTA too. And so I went back to my um, then CEO and CEO at BAFTA and asked if I could, if there was a way that I could maybe do both. And do so both. 
yeah so I did in a way I became you know became freelance and I did both for quite four or five years and the job changed at a factor at that point and then obviously I had to kind of let go of certain things and then mm-hmm. but by letting go of certain things and I got to work on the kind of I got to make TV and work on an international film show and also become a journalist which I'd never really had you know had done a few on stage kind of Q&As and bits and pieces before but I never had really in an official sense been a journalist which was mm-hmm. something that kind of even I don't know if I'd even thought about you know I just like I like asking people questions I like talking to people but I didn't know that you know that could you could do that and so mm-hmm. that was an incredible experience and the film show Al Jazeera was also really interesting because we interviewed filmmakers from all around the world who had films in different festivals they didn't have to have a UK release, for instance, because it's a global network. So that didn't matter so much. And my role was to find the films for the second part of the show that we did that we used to record in London. We used to invite a filmmaker over after we'd played their film to a private audience and then we'd do a Q&A. And so we managed to kind of work with a lot of people when it was their first film before kind of they'd been discovered. So I got to kind of, you know, I did Carrie Fukunaga with Sinombre and Nadine Labaki with Caramel and Denny Villeneuve with Anton D. And we had Taika Waititi with Eagle mm-hmm. versus Sharks. We had all of these kind of first-time filmmakers that, you know, were unknown in the world at that point, but because they were unknown, they're like, will you come on this little show out of era? I did some stuff in the UK with Google, what was then the Film Council, and then, yeah, various kind of other bits and pieces that all kind of film related and then I went back to BAFTA probably fully I think maybe 2013 or 14 so I've been probably fully back there yeah, for the last 10 years and in this role I've had a program now for five years six years five years yeah what was it that attracted you to the head of programs position were you offered it or did you apply for it or how did it come about um, a little bit of both. So it was a new position and it was discussed with me, but there was obviously an application process as well. So I had been very film focused in everything I had done. I'd done obviously a little bit in TV as well, but this was exciting because this role was across all three sectors of BAFTA House Film, Games and TV. And it was to devise a strategy and a programme across all three sectors that was industry facing as well as open to kind of non-members in the public as well. It was also to bring a little bit of cohesion to all of those programmes to cement in objectives for why we do what we're doing and for what audiences, as well as being able to still be a little bit creative as well. So yeah, it was exciting in the sense of kind of having more of a strategic overview. For me, it sounds like, you know, when you say the head of something, you know, a, re- a position that requires a lot of responsibility and confidence, would you say that's true? And how do you manage being in your role? think if we will admit something we're all probably just winging it aren't we really um we're what sorry a little bit of, uh, we're all just winging it a little bit winging I think. it in yeah terms of life yeah in terms of life we just that's what we do I think it's about having a team and people around you that know things that you don't know because that's kind of really important you can't grow and you can't develop a program kind of on the back of kind of one person or what they know kind of like I think we're very collaborative and I think that's a key part of it there's obviously elements kind of sometimes there's pressurized situations and things can be quite stressful and pressurized at certain touch points but you always have to remember kind of the, the re- rationale of why you're doing it and also that if things don't work out and things don't go to plan it really does not matter none of it really in the grand scheme of things none of it matters and I think people are 
be far more um, accepting of people admitting their mistakes and when things go wrong rather than kind of trying to present some element of perfection all the Mm -hmm. time can you ever grow and learn if you don't also just think that kind of we're all kind of learning and as the industry and sectors change you know we have to change and grow with it as well and yeah as I say the kind of screen industries obviously they're continually growing and changing and even in the last couple of decades you know practices are evolving and people are working to be more inclusive and have different structures in place that make kind of workplace culture a place that's kind of more accepting of everyone and a place where you know whoever you are or wherever background you come in you kind of fit into that I think that kind of when you mentioned kind of how do you have the confidence to kind of do these things, I don't think kind of really anyone maybe even does. I know imposter syndrome is something that kind of is talked about a lot, but I think it's most people's superpower in a way. Being slightly on the edge or slightly the outside or out of place gives you an element of being able to see things from your own perspective that then brings an element of difference to something as well I should say the same that's the kind of thing for most I think as soon as you lose that element of imposter syndrome or maybe not feeling like you quite fit in that's where maybe complacency begins and things aren't you're not as excited or you're not so eager to challenge the status quo or change things up sometimes I was wondering what your everyday looks like in your role and then how does this change when it goes into awards season and also on the day of the BAFTA awards so every day is completely different. So with my team, we don't work on the awards or in direct correlation to the awards. So we have year-round activities. So in, we do approximately about 150, 200 events a year. Wow. We, have, we program about 150 film screenings, which around 50 of those have Q&As. And so that's year-round. And the times of the year when it's obviously busier, so the autumn, winter, naturally, are busier times. And so there isn't really downtime. It does sometimes get busier, just obviously in general for the team around kind of awards as the organization's busier, inevitably you are as well. In terms of the kind of, there is a, like a no average day. It's a mixture kind of meeting, watching stuff, a lot of stuff and kind of like at different times of the year, it's more. So sometimes when it's in film awards season, for instance, you know, you could be on, you know, one to two films a day. You've got to try and fit in. And we also do TV programming for your, always watching stuff and then in general just because kind of the very nature of loving film tv and games you kind of want to do as much of that in your spare time as well so you're kind of always trying to keep abreast of it and watch things there's a lot of reading as well keeping up on what's going out on out there and then just industry meetings in general kind of always engaging kind of with broadcasters the streamers the production companies game studios just to see what's going on what's the state of play what can we be doing to help profile and platform them mm-hmm. I mean it is an industry that does really move really fast to be honest I mean the rate it felt that films are coming out now I, I think sometimes I've still not seen a, uh, films that have won awards years ago <laughs> and I'm trying to yeah, catch up with all the ones that are coming coming out now um exactly how can you it's so difficult I mean you know it's what in the UK I don't, I'm going to put a figure out it's going to be incorrect I'm not going to say I'm just going to say hundreds and hundreds of films <laughs> released every single year and if it's kind of me and my team's respect a lot of ours is to view as many of those as we can if we can't you know get through sometimes you know the hundreds and hundreds it's you know it's hard for everyone else yeah that. yeah exactly and it's like at least in your spare time that's what you have to do I mean because you like doing yeah. that anyway so it mustn't be too much of a chore <laughs> yeah. 
you've done your own interviews and Q&A panels and what would you call it? Yeah, moderation. Um, yeah. And I saw your one recently with Penelope Cruz. And I was wondering what has been your most enjoyable uh, interviews to do and maybe your more challenging ones. Because I can imagine, you know, when you did your first one, although with your experience from Al Jazeera, that probably helped for this. But yeah, what was your most challenging and enjoyable interviews to do? The first interview actually was pre-Al Jazeera on stage and was bizarrely Penelope Cruz. Oh, so you've interviewed her before? Yeah, that was my first ever interview, which was um, a little bit of mad and a baptism of fire. It just happened like it was a screening of Vicky Christina Barcelona. And I think the publicists were still kind of, it was a very last minute screening that we'd, we'd programmed in. I remember December time, it was before Christmas or something. And they were like, oh, and like, oh could you just do the interview? And I'm like, what? And like, okay. <laughs> and so I we did that. And then obviously since then, there's been, I think, thousands of so many different kinds of interviews. And then mm-hmm. the like full circle moment with Penelope again. So it was like 15 years later on the same stage, which was, Wow. Really lovely and it was quite early on in her kind of English language career as well when we did the, the first time round and so it was really sweet because we thought and say she's like oh, I remember I was here we did an interview on the stage oh like, that's lovely she remembered it was and no it was really lovely um in terms of challenging I wouldn't say challenging because of the people that have interviewed but maybe challenging in terms of sometimes subject matter it's always mainly been film and tv focused the interviews but there's been a lot kind of that have been involved in politics or geopolitics. And so the subject matters can be, some, you know, just filmmakers and contributors that have gone through experiences that you can't even begin to comprehend or understand yourself. And so I feel it's challenging in the sense of kind of not to undermine their experience by asking them questions about it, but also to give them space and feel comfortable enough to be able to be open to talk about those things without having to relive what they've shared in the film. I did interview with Jamal Khashoggi's wife, a teacher, for a film called The Dissident, and so it was a year after he'd been murdered, and I think it was the first, one of the first interviews for the film that we'd done, so that was, gave me a little bit of anxiety before I did it, because it was, it was an interview with a woman whose husband had been murdered in also not just murdered but also that murder was retold around the world so many times and so that was yeah difficult but yeah sorry I don't know if I've answered your question there no definitely you did I mean yeah yeah, uh, that makes sense that it's not necessarily about the people you're interviewing um it's sometimes the topic matters maybe that are more delicate than others Mm. when it's someone you've never met and um you know so and you want to get it right as well so I was wondering what advice would you give from your experiences of interviewing well I don't know if I'm best placed to give advice I'd always just say it's a conversation imagine having a conversation and whatever curiosity is in your head about what you want to find out is the curiosity the audience will have as well so things kind of you know whatever you want to know is not going to be dissimilar to most other people as well always be respectful don't ask people questions about anything like you know if, unless they divulge it themselves about their personal life or anything mm-hmm. to do with that kind of very much kind of you know especially in kind of the interviews I do it's very much about the politics of a situation or between about film and tv be interested <laughs> yeah um, I know I know it's so easy to kind of like 
not think that but you know be interested and also just research is key and I think it can be really really undervalued but research and like research the person research their work or and that work but also just research the subject matter around what the film has been about as well I just think that it, you know you can never have too much information in your head yeah. and, you know you might not use it but then also have all of that in your head you know have it there but then almost when you get on stage or you get on a podcast or you you know or on radio or tv then almost forget that as well just be in the moment and be in the conversation and in your head you might have touch points that you think you want to get through but if the conversation doesn't go that way don't stress out as well because you know you don't have to go in the direction it could go in a other directions don't be afraid for it to go in that way either yeah some great tips definitely I mean you've had to do your interviews I'm assuming probably during the COVID period you probably did a lot over Zoom like um like we're doing right now but also on stage would you, or would you say you're naturally confident to be able to go up on stage and interview quite big names or is it something you've had to build yourself up a bit before you get on stage to do uh, an interview oh god I'm always nervous <laughs> yeah I think always nervous whoever it is it's I think anyone that you like you said anyone that you're meeting for the first time or even the second or third time the dynamic how your day's been how their day's been how everything's been how maybe if you're on zoom or if you're on the, or you don't know kind of there's so many factors that come into something mm-hmm. that there's always an element of nerve there I always struggle as well with getting the first question out and knowing how to frame that. And my first question, I always know it sometimes it's like three or four sentences and I realize it's not a question at all. But as <laughs> soon as I've well. got over it, yeah, it's just it's like, it's like just to ease my way into it. But as soon as I've got over that first kind of hurdle mm-hmm. in the first few minutes, and then I think, okay, breathe, relax into <laughs> it. I do prefer having a live audience to just feed off that energy. I really enjoy. You prefer having, it. You know, I prefer it. Okay, because yeah. I was going to say yeah. having an audience that would be like an extra thing on top of everything else. But yeah, but then yeah, as you say, you can get them to ask hey, the questions. Energy, yeah. yeah, and you can you know if it's going kind of sometimes you can know if it's energy going well by the feeling in the room. You can tell kind of by how engaged people are. Mm-hmm. Um, saying that obviously with COVID and on Zoom, I think it's been one or two a week at one point, if not more, and it was a different dynamic in the sense that. I was in their lounge or bedroom or office or whatever, and they were in my space. And so with that, someone being in your space gives a different level of intimacy into mm-hmm. kind of how relaxed sometimes people are. And I think some of those interviews have got kind of a different part of people that you would ever get to experience normally. If there's some mm. of those things, I think people share things that they might not have done if they were on a stage in front of 200 people, yeah. but they were still on zoom and in fact sometimes thousands or hundreds of people but they still because they can see they were more willing to I think you know be open, open and vulnerable yeah so it's yeah it's a different it's a different dynamic in kind of how yeah. people operate interesting mm-hmm. have you got a favorite interview that you've done with anyone ah oh my god <laughs> I do have a few favorites I think I did an interview 2017 or 18 if I'm with it was on it was a 90 minute on stage with Timothy Chalamet and Daniel Kluwer wow and that was fun that was they had a really great dynamic and they were just up for having a laugh and so that was and the audience was obviously kind of on fire with them (laughs) and so that was just a really fun 90 minute yeah roller coaster who else 
in Germany that I've loved doing. I think I would be the I same adopt- with Timothy Chalamet, although I probably wouldn't be able to do it. I would just be freaking out too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, he was a very lovely young man, very lovely young man. It did, it was the recent one, it was last weekend or the weekend before I did an interview with Indian-Canadian filmmaker called Nisha Pahuja, who did a documentary called To Kill a Tiger, which is just I've heard of this. nominated. Yes, it yeah. has, yeah. I really enjoyed that interview. Just It was in the sense that not the subject matter of the film was kind of is about the assault of a child, a young girl in India. So the subject matter yeah, is kind of very hard to deal with and quite serious. But the filmmaker just had such a beautiful way of telling her story, but also delivering the Q&A that it kind of, even though the subject was really hard, to watch she kind of managed to dissipate and dissolve the anger even within the film and then with her Q&A it was just I can't explain it very well but she just managed to talk about how kind of in filmmaking how you get away with not feeling the anger especially with documentary filmmaking kind of how you have to choose to let certain things go so just because that was the last interview I did I think that mm-hmm. stuck in my way and then also, because a couple of days ago the film's just got an Oscar nomination yeah. So that's kind yeah. of why it's in my head. I do enjoy doing documentary Q&A documentary filmmakers. Mm-hmm. I've been lucky to do kind of a lot in that sense. And yeah, I think it is, for me, it's a balance of both the worlds that I kind of love in terms of filmmaking and then also kind of geopolitics and politics. And so it's both my favourite worlds in a way coming together. So the BAFTAs are coming up very soon on the 18th of February. Is that correct? It is yes. indeed. Yes. Yeah. So, will you be working at the the awards ceremony, or do you get to just go there and enjoy it? Um, get to go and enjoy. Oh, that's yeah. fab! Amazing. Nice. That's good. Yeah. So, what can we expect at the awards ceremony this year, and how much are you involved in the organising of the mm-hmm. awards ceremony? So, not involved at all. We have been involved in a podcast that we've just launched. It's called Countdown to the Bastards, which you can find on all podcast platforms. So okay, um, we've been involved in that. So yeah, that's got interviews with our best film nominees. So take a listen of that. Um, Amazing. And then in terms of the ceremony, yes, they're going to be, I think they're enjoying it as a kind of punter and really excited about David Tennant. Yeah. I love David Tennant. Me too. You, you know, only reason I watched Doctor Who was probably because of him. So, <laughs> so sorry, I'm just looking my looking down at my questions. <laughs> Hope you don't mind. Okay. I think. Um, do you do you still do that as well in interviews? Do you have your questions written down? I have them. I have the safety net of having them always. My writing is awful, so I have like notes. I usually just write words <laughs> to jog jog me. Okay, yeah, but yeah, yeah, I always still have them. So it's good to like you know, you never know, you never know when you might need something. Exactly, you know, when you see people like when they get up on stage and they accept an award and like they've got it all memorized. I'm like, how? Yeah. Obviously, there a lot of them are actors, so they know how to memorize lines. Yeah. It's kind of their job, but still, like, I'm the sort of person that I need everything written down. So, yeah, I would love to ask you, what were your standout films in the past year by women? So, it's very hard. I can't actually tell you which ones, standout films I think by women in the last year, just because vast of voting is still open, so that would show a little bit of undue preference. Okay. Um, but I'd be happy to talk about female filmmakers that I think are phenomenal. Yeah, definitely. People should go and see their work 
so the Lebanese filmmaker, which I'm sure everyone's heard of, called Nadine Labaki. Yeah. Um, her last film, Kapanayim, was Bastard and Oscar nominated. And her first film, Caramel, is just beautiful. I've always been um, a massive fan and been influenced by the films of Miranaya. So Monsoon Wedding, mm-hmm. um, Mr. Humasala, Indian filmmaker, Deepa Mehta, who is an Indian-Canadian filmmaker. I love Lulu Wang, who obviously The Farewell. I mentioned Nisha Pahuja, but her documentary to Kill a Tiger, if you can watch that, please do. There is an Arab female filmmaker called Jehan Nushaim, who did The Great Hat and also Control Room, who is a phenomenal documentary filmmaker. So I would recommend her. And if we're looking at kind of up and coming British female filmmakers, I would say kind of just to represent some South Asian talent, Nida Manzoor, who did Polite Society and who has done Lady We Are Lady Parts on Channel 4 would be kind of one to watch for me. So those are kind of my little breakdown of just female directors that yeah. I who's worth. I'll be I taking note definitely yeah. and looking up um, some of the films you mentioned. Uh, but it's really yeah. amazing to see in a lot of the BAFTA nominations as well, Barbie, uh, Anatomy of a Fall. Those are, you know, the ones that are coming up a lot, of course, as well, Past Lives by Celine Song. So yeah, there's a lot of representation um, of women this year in the awards sort of circuit, which is great to see. What is BAFTA doing to help giving a better representation of women in the film, TV, and I guess games industry? But we'll focus on film and TV in this case, because that's oh. what the podcast is about. <laughs> yeah, of course. So my department sits within, like my team within a bigger department that's called Learning, Inclusion and Talent. So at the heart of everything we do, essentially in our year-round programs are to build towards film and TV and games and all those sectors being a more inclusive space for people to enter into and sustain a career throughout, kind of breaking down those barriers for people from all, but regardless of background, to have the opportunity to be part of those, but be part of the screen industry. So I think for women, definitely, but for all underrepresented groups, that's kind of the very backbone of our programme. And so everything we really do and most things that we profile or highlight to our programme is all about championing those underrepresented voices and making sure there aren't barriers to progression. So if you're not a BAFTA member, our programme is open to everyone. So just sign up to our BAFTA newsletter and everyone can attend 99% of our activity. So that's there for, there for the taking, if you mm-hmm. like. We also have um, BAFTA's YouTube channel, which has a lot of content from kind of our awards and our events. So specifically towards women, I think that kind of encompasses kind of everything that we already do and the championing. And, you know, hopefully we'll get to a utopian place one day where, (laughs) you know, everything, everyone from every section of society feels they are reflected Mm -hmm. on and off screen and represented in a fair and equitable way. Yeah, we're getting there. (laughs) We're getting there, (laughs) we are. So you mentioned that so anyone can be part of the the BAFTA yeah, newsletter program and know about the events and go to the events. On a more career side of things, does BAFTA offer internships or placements for those looking to work in the industry? We do indeed. We do internships annually through Creative Access. And so sign up to our BAFTA 
newsletter you'll get information about those as well so yeah we do do in paid internships that annual and with the internships you get the opportunity to work across all different departments within that as well so you get to kind of get a flavor of all aspects of how BAFTA works. We also have another tier of membership called Connect which is for people kind of the early stage of their career so between kind of maybe three to seven years we have 2,200 Connect members so that's another avenue in for people that have started out in the industry and perhaps don't think they're quite yet have the experience level to be BAFTA members but want to think about kind of have a few couple of years under their belt would want that it's kind of 10 pounds a month but you still get access to BAFTA and the, the entire program as well. So what advice would you give to someone that would like to work for BAFTA or get an internship what kind of qualities does the I guess the human resources team look for when hiring someone? That's a good question I think enthusiasm and interest are key things don't think about kind of we don't look for kind of the conventional in terms you don't have to have certain qualifications or you know you don't have to have certain what's the word skills are kind of transferable so Mm -hmm. you know don't think that don't feel limited by what you think you haven't got always think about what you could what you do have and what you can offer it's more about kind of transferable skills don't feel that you have to have a degree and don't feel that you have to come from a certain background I mean a lot of it is kind of what your own interests are, your own enthusiasm is within those sectors. But also kind of, you know, what so many people do things off of their own interests and their initiatives, they kind of, you know, do local community-based projects or, you know, they've done certain things in their the groups and as part, as part of, you know, their hobbies or pastimes. What changes are BAFTA looking to add in the future and what changes can we see coming in 2024 and going onwards? Sure. Um, I would say that our year-round work is all about um, driving change. That's what the whole ethos of the programme is. So at the end of last year, launched Source looking at combating socioeconomic disadvantage in the screen industries and the barriers that exist within that. A lot of this year, my team will be focusing on events that look at socioeconomic disadvantage, how we can look at areas of on and off-screen representation, career progression long financial inequality and the notion that I think I mentioned earlier on about code switching how you always feel you've got to be a different person in a certain room so those are the areas that were identified within the resource so we'll be focusing kind of that's the change that we want to see I think in the next few years to kind of look at how class doesn't have to impact your entry progression and success within the screen industry. Fab. So the change for BAFTA is basically change, changes. Change. Change is change. Change is change. Well, Fab, thank you so much for chatting with me today on my podcast. It's been really interesting to learn about your career and have a great time next month at the awards ceremony. I'm looking forward to watching it on TV. I'm excited to see who wins, but we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Real Girls Club. You can find all other previous episodes of the podcast here on Spotify. I'll be back soon with another episode, but in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at Real Girls Club for updates and have a lovely day.